Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, the world of technology can be pretty complicated at times, which is part of the reason why I think my colleagues at How Stuff Works back in the old days weren't really eager to jump on that particular category when we were figuring out who should be the head writer for each channel of subject matter on the website. But I argue that once you get past certain thresholds, a lot of the basic principles underlying technology become fairly easy to grasp, and it's really easy to apply them to different areas. So really, there's a a barrier, but once you get beyond that barrier, things are relatively simple. But one thing that is deceptively complicated is the supply chain. Now, you may have heard stories of companies having to deal with issues involving supply chains, but what does that actually mean? What is a supply chain? It's not just something that's restricted to the world of technology. Supply chains are in all sorts of businesses, but in tech, we see how these challenges in supply chains can play out pretty easily, and it is frequently a matter of headlines in tech news. So to answer these questions, you know, about what a supply chain is, I turn to John Bermudez of Tracelink. He's the general manager of Tracelink's digital network platform. And Tracelink provides many services, including ways to manage a supply chain. So here's our interview. John, welcome to Tech Stuff, and thank you for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. So the first question I have for you is really a very high-level question. Uh, And it's simply because a lot of my listeners they come at the world as, you know, a user slash consumer slash customer kind of approach. So they're not necessarily thinking about all the moving parts that make business in the 21st century work. So if you had to explain to somebody who was completely ignorant of that world what supply chain actually means, how would you do that? Well, that's a great question. So years ago, my three-year-old son when I was trying to get him to bed, uh, which if you have kids, you know that they don't really ask you any questions until you're trying to get them to brush your teeth. So he asked me, he goes, Dad, where are you going tomorrow? I said, I'm going to California to speak about supply chain. He goes, Dad, what's supply chain? He said, well, Eric, this toothpaste tube is almost empty. So when we go and buy another one at Market Basket, uh, the people at Market Basket need to have one because we bought one there last time. So the process of getting that toothpaste tube to market basket from the manufacturer, maybe through a warehouse, is the process of supply chain, of which my three-year-old looked at me and said, Dad, when you grow up, you should be a fireman. (laughs) Uh, But quite simply, supply chain is about getting product from its raw materials through the various manufacturers to to the end consumer. So whether it's a consumer good, something relatively simple like a a bottle, a can of uh, Coke Zero, which uh, comes from a bottling plant, uh, which receives uh, the secret formula from the secret Coke manufacturing sites and then put in cans and deliver it to convenience stores and and supermarkets. Um, Or whether it's something much more complex like Tracelink is involved in, where you have pharmaceutical supply chains that have uh, many participants and obviously got to make sure that life-saving drugs get to... uh, the many different points at which they need to be, whether it's pharmacies, hospitals, clinics, uh, you know, shipped around the world to uh, 
deal with uh, emergency situations. So supply chain is the process of getting things where they need to be. Yeah, and as I understand it, it's it's one of those things that can be fairly simple or incredibly complicated depending upon the scale and the necessities of any given product. So, for example, in my sphere in the technology world, when we talk about things like personal computers are a great example or mobile phones, these are things that we as consumers often think of as coming from a single source, right? You get an iPhone from Apple and that's where you go and that's where it comes from and there's someplace a little uh, Apple manufacturing facility and these come out fully formed after they do whatever magical thing it is they do. But in reality, what you're talking about is the combination of lots of different elements, many of which are coming from different places all around the world that all have to come together in order to be assembled into this final product that we get our hands on. And that's just in the world of technology. This is obviously something that applies across the board to lots of different industries. And uh, I would imagine that today with the global economy that we have, the fact that we have facilities all around the world that participate in this economy Maybe they're providing one small part of an overall large uh, package that that can get very, very complex very quickly. Is that a fairly accurate assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And your example of an iPhone is a great example. Yes, there are, are hundreds of little parts in there. If you were ever unfortunate to drop and break yours, you'll see that there are lots of tiny, very sophisticated parts in there that come from uh, dozens of suppliers. And there's also a timing element because if you think about Apple and their new iPhone launches, you know, they plan these uh, and are tracked, you know, by millions of people. If they're going to have a launch on September 10th, hundreds of millions of people expecting product to be in stores around the world on September 10th. So not only do you have to get hundreds of parts from lots of suppliers in different parts of the world and then get them to a factory, uh, but on top of that, you have to maybe make five or 10 million of these iPhones and then get them to thousands of uh, distributions uh, to stores and do it all to make sure they're there on September uh, 10th. So there's a timing element, which sometimes you could say what in the Apple case, somewhat self-imposed. They like the drama of having people camping out outside their stores. Uh, but in other supply chains, which seems simple, they think about um, you know fresh pineapple coming from Hawaii that cannot stay on a ship for six months and get lost. It needs to uh, move very quickly through the supply chain, through distribution centers, and end up on a store shelf uh, in a relatively short uh, segment of time. So even the simplest supply chains uh, are not as simple as they seem. You know, I spend time in Asia with uh, simple things like fashion supply chains. You think, well, how complicated it is to make a pair of yoga pants? Well, um, you know, they're made in factories in Malaysia and China. They have to make very different uh, sizes and colors. They have hang tags destined for uh, hundreds of countries around the world with different pricing and different languages on them. Uh, and then also the fashion industry has gone into a, a mode where it wants to change fashions uh, 10, 15, 20 times a year. The state of the art in the fashion industry is a company that's changing fashions almost 50 times a year. So. Uh, if that product gets stuck in the supply chain and uh, it misses the fashion window, it goes from being a very valuable pair of, uh, of workout gear that sells for $100 to something that ends up at the discount rack for $20. And obviously, nobody makes any money at that. So even simple products um, have can have 
pretty complex elements to their supply chain. And then on top of that, you have all the added uh, complications that come into things like whether or not uh, tariffs are a part of it. Uh, we, we talk a little bit about pharmaceuticals. Obviously, with pharmaceuticals, you have very real concerns about validity and quality issues to make certain that the 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 various components that are coming together to make uh, drugs are safe for consumption. This sounds like it can very rapidly become a logistical nightmare if you're trying to manage all of this. So can you talk to me a little bit about the approach to solving this, where you're, you've you got this, this complex web that if everything's working great, it's fine. Everything is smooth sailing. But as we know in the real world, it it rarely does everything work great all the time. Usually there's going to be some issue somewhere along the line, and it's important to know where that's happening and how to respond to it in a timely way. So talk a li- little bit about that sort of approach to solving this very difficult challenge. Well, just providing a little history, the, the, the approach up until recently had been to try to run these problems through very large, complex supply chain planning software that would kind of tell you where everything needed to be, when to order things, when to move things. But as you pointed out, it, it turned out that model is just too complex and these, pro- these solutions would run forever. So the trend now is to put these uh, and manage the execution of these supply chains across real-time networks so that you can get real-time information. You know, a, a real-time example is, uh, you know, tariffs. You know, a tariff can pop up in a week. So a supply chain that was moving, uh, running smoothly, now is sitting waiting for tariff uh, documentation to get from through from one country to the next. So it may add a week to that supply chain, and maybe the supply chain cannot afford a week. So what you might end up doing with that, if it was destined to go in a container on a container ship, uh, you see this the uh, the advantage of having a real time network that can reach out and know where that product is. Uh, you can then route it to uh, to air cargo and fly it. You can't do anything about the tariff. You can't do anything about the time it takes for it to get uh, through the inspection center, uh, but you can route it to uh, to air cargo and change the amount of time it's going to spend in transit. So it's really you're seeing a, a trend in real-time networks uh, to provide much more visibility because supply chains are complex. Uh, many things can disrupt them. Uh, and, you know, we've leaned out supply chains uh, to a point, you know, part of the just-in-time good inventory management practices of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s have made for very streamlined supply chains, but then, you know, they can be uh, disrupted uh, pretty easily. um, And it can cost, uh, you know, millions of dollars to a company that, is depending on something being there, what it's supposed to be. So the network allows you to see where it is, provide real-time collaboration with the various parties to get it. You know, So it's not just the supplier who made it and the, the finished goods manufacturer or the consumer that wants it, but the logistics providers, people provide customs documentation um, or making sure that uh, the two countries have a, a trading agreement. You know, there are countries that will not take products sourced in other countries. So um, <clears throat> you need to make sure it's not destined for a country that's going to block it at the port. 
And real-time networks are helping companies deal with that. Yeah, I, I've often, I've done episodes in the past about uh, a lot of, of uh, like, crowdfunded campaigns for physical products and how I think a lot of people who go into that, they don't have this background in the manufacturing world. They have a clear idea of what it is they want to do. They've built a prototype and the prototype works, but they don't necessarily have a full appreciation of how complicated this can get. And uh, in, inevitably, these end up being some of those stories that end up in the top 10 lists of of failures in crowdfunding, right? Like you see stories about companies or or would-be companies that crash and burn because they encounter these, these problems that uh, can quickly throw off a timeline. And as we've seen in crowdfunding, often people who back them are not the most forgiving of, <laughs> of uh, investors in a company. So to me, it's it's having this understanding is key of how this is uh, something that people have to keep in mind if they're getting involved in any sense in, in manufacturing because it allows you to build in those buffers and to also be able to communicate in a transparent way to perhaps a, a group of investors in the case of a crowdfunding campaign about what is going on and why it is uh, uh, something that is taking more time than was anticipated. Uh, I'm also curious, I know that there's been a lot of talk about using blockchain technology in uh, in an effort to manage things like supply chains. And blockchain, I think, is one of those, those words that a lot of people have heard a great deal about, but they don't have a very deep understanding of what it means. And they it's hard to visualize how that is useful in uh, management of a supply chain, verifying when and where uh, products have left particular facilities. Can you speak a little bit about the use of blockchain in uh, supply chain management and why it is so promising? Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of talk about it in supply chain, and I spent a lot of time looking at it. And, you know, there's a lot of pilots that I think will go nowhere because they don't really have a value proposition that there is an easier way to solve the same problem. You know, where blockchain does apply, and actually at Tracelink, we have a pilot with a number of companies uh, and also involves the FDA is where tra- where supply chain makes sense or blockchain makes sense in supply chain is where you need to share um, information between multiple parties and you may not want all parties to know where the information came from, but you want to make sure that the, every party on the um, who gets the information can trust it. Mm-hmm. So the example uh, is, and I, I'm going to have to get a little technical here on the pharmaceutical supply chain, but about seven, eight years ago, there was a requirement that all lots and, and serial numbers be tracked throughout the supply chain so that we could uh, combat uh, mostly counterfeit drugs, diverted drugs, to make sure that the medicines everybody receives are what they think they are. So there's actually uh, legislation going in place uh, in 2023 in the United States, and it'll fast follow throughout the rest of the world, so that um, a pharmacy, if you go to uh, your neighborhood pharmacy, and you're concerned about where that uh, medicine you would just receive came from, they would be able to call up a history uh, of all the steps that it went through. So 
the pharmaceutical supply chain is pretty complicated. I won't get into the details of that, but it goes through multiple parties from uh, where the original ingredients come from to the manufacturer to wholesalers uh, and, every, and various parties in between. So blockchain is, uh, we're actually piloting a blockchain uh, project with about uh, 20 other uh, players in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, to meet this FDA requirement that uh, the pharmacy be able to tell you, uh, you know, when each stage of the of the supply chain process happened, uh, and that and validate the data that there was no um, that it can be traced back to an origin because often uh, with counterfeit drugs, uh, even things that are serialized, uh, when you try to chase the, trace them back, you find that they just magically appeared somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Magically appearing is good for leprechauns, uh, but it's not it's not good for anything you want to put in your body to help you with an illness. Uh, so, so that's a great example how blockchain can be used in the supply chain because it's it's shielding the information. And I won't get into the detail, but various parties don't necessarily want to uh, be. Um, you know, want the fact that they're just part of the supply chain disclosed for competitive reasons or other reasons. So the blockchain will allow us to validate that uh, this is a legitimate product and there's an entire chain of custody history here uh, that the blockchain application can validate without having to disclose, you know, which distributor supplied uh, the pharmacy um, because you might be, uh, you know, brand B distributor using your local pharmacy, thinking brand B is supplying this pharmacy only to find out that this product came from brand C uh, wholesaler, and you're questioning why that is. Well, mm-hmm. you, you you wouldn't know that, but you will know that this is an, a, a, an accurate product. So you'll see a lot of the a lot of the successful blockchain projects in supply chain, I think, will be oriented around the chain of custody and being able to to validate um, from source to consumption that this uh, that the product has pedigree uh, without having to know you know without you having to know where exactly it came from now the um, you know the FDA currently requires uh, the pharmacy to know where it got it from and and they could tell you that but one step back there's there's no current requirement that uh, the pharmacy knows, say, for example, where the wholesaler got it from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the new law is not going to change that, uh, but it will require this pedigree history. So you'll see a lot of that. You see uh, IBM and Maersk have been uh, working on a similar blockchain effort to uh, provide chain of custody of uh, globally shipped items. Um, you know, where I don't see uh, some of the other projects in supply chain um to transfer big pieces of information like entire contents of containers or bills of lading, uh, that's a lot of information to be replicated across many nodes in the supply chain. And um, those projects, uh, you know, are they're out there, but uh, their success is still um, people are still questioning uh, storing that much information. Uh, the storing of Bitcoin information, which is actually very mi- tiny, mm-hmm. is consuming or uh, computer power than anybody would like to admit. We're going to take a quick break from the interview and come back with the rest of it. 
uh, in just a moment. But first, let's listen to this word from our sponsor. Okay, let's get back to my interview with John Bermudez of Tracelink. We're picking up with a quick overview of blockchain technology and how it helps parties verify data. So basically, the whole process, in case people out there are wondering about this whole validation idea, is that the the blockchain technology stores information in what are called blocks. And you can think of it as the name of the block is the result of a mathematical process that's done on all the information that has been inputted into that block. And then the succeeding block has that name incorporated into its process of generating its own name. So in other words, each block in the chain has a reference to a previous block, meaning that making any alterations, trying to change the the chain is incredibly difficult because not only do you have to change the information in the block that you're interested in, but every block that follows after. And because a blockchain is a distributed ledger, not necessarily across as large a network as, say, Bitcoin, but is a distributed ledger that multiple parties can see, it is very hard to do that on enough uh, machines where you can alter that in a way that is undetectable. You have to essentially have control of more than half of all the machines on the system in order to do that. And it's that's not an easy task. So that is sort of the, the thought process. I agree with you. I think that blockchain certainly has its usefulness in things like the pharmaceutical field, uh, perhaps in things like uh, food chain supply. Also, can you can see some applications there potentially. Uh, I do think as well that it is not going to be the universal uh, solution to all supply chain issues. But I think that in a few cases, it it certainly will uh, will meet the requirements that a lot of people have in order to verify, yes, in fact, this is exactly what it, it claims to be. This isn't a counterfeit, uh, especially for something as important as medication. Obviously, we want to be absolutely certain that that stuff is valid and will do what it is uh, it it claims to do. Well, this is really interesting to me because, again, as someone from the other side of it, where I, I get to enjoy these various products that uh, that I I don't have to spend a whole lot of time thinking about what actually was required to bring it to the point where I could get my grubby little hands on it. It is nice to be able to reflect for a moment how complicated this process is and how much work has to go in in order for me to enjoy that amazing privilege. I I get a deeper appreciation for it. And it also really reinforces the idea that I am never going to have a crowdfunded campaign to launch a product ever because I I just can't deal with that level of stress. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining our show and, and describing this process. I think it really has helped open up my eyes and hopefully the eyes of many of my listeners to, you know, the work that you do and how you are able to tackle this very large and and sometimes confusing issue of managing these supply chains. It's been fascinating. You're quite welcome. Uh, Happy to participate. Thank you for inviting me. Now, at this point, 
The interview was technically over, but John had a really good point about the food supply chain that I wanted to share with you guys. So this little bit came after our initial conversation, but I think it's worthwhile including here. I have concerns over the fresh food blockchains that are out there. Oh, yeah? Because you know what? One of the things to think about is what makes the pharmaceutical supply chain, and actually what Trace plays a big part on, is the serialization and digital you know, digitally tracking each serial number through its entire life cycle. Mm -hmm. The challenge that I see with, you know, the the fresh tomato example is um, we all hear about these E. coli problems and all these other things, and quite often they start in the field. Mm -hmm. So um, getting that digital uh, blockchain update that came from this particular field you know, nobody has provided me with an idea how that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we're picking the tomatoes are handpicked um, and they go in boxes and then the boxes go in trucks and they probably go to a packing center. And that's probably where they enter the blockchain. So what happened between the field and the packing center? Um, or maybe when it was loaded on the truck, it was scanned, but still. Um so that part, uh, I think one of the things that you'll see blockchain applications, blockchain supply chain, where we can, and this is why Bitcoin works so well, because everything is digital. So mm-hmm. there's no way to fake it. There's no tomato growing on a, there's no Bitcoin growing on a tomato bush in the Salinas Valley. Right. I want to thank John Bermudez again for coming on the show and talking to me about supply chain management. And he does make an excellent point. For blockchain technology to work effectively, as part of a supply chain. You really need it to be a part of the whole system from the very beginning. If there is any ambiguity about the origin for a specific component, such as a particular piece of fruit in the food supply chain example, then the best you can do is say, well, we can trace this particular piece of fruit back to this specific warehouse or distribution center. But you can't go back further if you didn't have a means of entering in the information from the very beginning. So if you're looking to identify the source of a particular outbreak in something like E. coli, that becomes a problem. So it falls to supply chain and blockchain experts to figure out a practical way to implement the technology so that it actually accomplishes the goals set out for it. The same thing can be said for counterfeit products or whether or not uh, something is truly organic for whatever worth that word happens to be in a case-by-case basis, or even things like free-range chicken or grass-fed beef. At some point, you need some form of certification process to verify that, yes, the claim being made is, in fact, verified and it is true, and then that goes into the blockchain. Otherwise, you could have a situation where someone tells you that it's true, It gets entered into the information that becomes part of the blockchain. And according to the blockchain, yes, it is true. But if you were to actually go and visit the site, you might find otherwise. These are issues that have to be worked out for blockchain to truly be useful in those supply chain uh, implementations. Now, I thought to round out the rest of this episode, we could talk a bit about some stories of companies and products that encountered challenges due to supply chain issues. And you may already have some ideas about likely candidates. One of them, which I was thinking about specifically while I was talking with Mr. Bermudez, was the coolest cooler. 
And I've talked about this product in episodes about crowdfunding before. I also uh, have an upcoming episode of The Brink about the coolest cooler. And I don't want to harp on it too much because I think that Ryan Grepper, who is the guy who came up with this idea, was truly sincere about this project. The issue was not with his desire to deliver upon his promises. It's not like he was trying to suggest a product with no intent on delivering. Rather, I think he just underestimated how hard and expensive it was going to be to make the product he had in mind. So, for those of you unfamiliar with this particular product, the coolest cooler is a beverage cooler, you know, an ice cooler with lots of bells and whistles. Uh, A fully kitted out version of Grepper's design included a blender for drinks, a Bluetooth speaker, a USB charger, an LED light built into the lid, a cutting board, storage for plates and cutlery, a bottle opener, and more. He launched his project twice on Kickstarter, and the first time it failed to get really any attention. But the second time, which he launched in July 2014, it got a lot of attention. It became one of the best-funded Kickstarter campaigns of all time. His goal was initially to raise $50,000, but by the end of that campaign, it had raised more than 13 million bucks. And if you were early enough, you could pledge at the $165 level to qualify for a coolest cooler of your very own. And even if you didn't get one of those 70 spots, you could still pledge at $185 plus $15 for shipping and handling for that privilege. Now, Grepper estimated that the final retail price of the cooler would be $299, so you could get it at a substantial discount. However, as it would turn out, his estimation was actually a gross underestimation of how much it would cost to produce those coolers at scale and sell them at a profit. Grepper ran into supply chain problems fairly early into the process. At one point, workers at the Chinese factory that produced the blender motor that Grepper needed for his uh, coolest cooler, they went on strike. And as we heard in the interview, when one piece of the supply chain goes wrong, it can affect everything else. With the coolest cooler, this cascaded into a PR disaster for Grepper, who was trying hard to fix things, but was in over his head. Currently, because of a class action lawsuit, he is under a mandate from the court system of the state of Oregon to get backers their coolers by the middle of 2020, or else he'll have to send each backer who has yet to receive a cooler a certain amount of money. I believe it's $20. He'll be obligated to do that even if the company itself were to go into bankruptcy. So even if the coolest cooler company dissolved he would still be held liable for sending that money out to each of those backers. And there are thousands of them. Again, from everything I've read, it seems like Grepper has tried to meet his obligations. It's just that the promises he made were too grand and the process to achieve those goals too arduous. And there were other problems besides the supply chain itself that would come into play. But I think that's one of the examples that really illustrates just how hard this is. And it's not just small startup businesses that can run into these issues. I evoked the name of Apple in my talk with Mr. Bermudez, and that's for a reason. The company has had problems with its supply chain a few times in its history. For example, in 2016, Apple unveiled the Apple AirPods. That's the company's Bluetooth-connected wireless earbuds. And at the time, Apple estimated that the product would be ready to ship by late October 2016. But even at the end of 2016, 
Finding AirPods was really, really hard. Nobody had them in stock. Apple stores would often receive fewer than a dozen boxes of AirPods, not crates of boxes, but actual just samples of AirPods. They would just get maybe 12 or fewer at a time. There were lots of uh, reasons and a lot of speculation as to why there were so few units available, why the, the supply was so low. The Wall Street Journal published a piece that stated that it was largely because of some technical issues with the AirPods themselves that Apple needed to work out, that, that they just weren't working properly, and so it was delaying shipments. But John Gruber, who's written a lot about Apple, wrote that based on his unnamed sources at Apple, the real reason was that the company encountered an, quote, unexpected manufacturing problem at scale, end quote. Typically, that points to a supply chain issue. Now, when we come back, I'm going to cover a couple of other stories with some similar problems. But first, let's take another quick break. So I've talked about coolers and earbuds, but supply chain problems can affect all sorts of things at different sizes even commercial jets. Back in the mid-2000s, the airline industry was eagerly anticipating the arrival of Boeing's 787 aircraft, aka the Dreamliner. And this was a new approach to large commercial aircraft. The airframe was made out of composite materials rather than the metal-based materials. This actually made the aircraft much lighter than earlier models like the 767, and that meant that the 787 had better fuel efficiency as a result. It's not as heavy, you don't need as much fuel to keep it in air. So Boeing estimated that they would be able to deliver the 787s to the various airlines by May 2008. But in reality, the planes would not be ready to enter service until October 2011. So you're talking about a three-year delay, well, a three-and-a-half-year delay. Many factors contributed to that delay, but the two big ones, according to most analysts, was that Boeing had tried to overhaul its supply chain and its assembly process all at the same time. And that this particular decision created complications that took way longer to work out than the company had anticipated. And every analyst or expert that I read about or read their work while researching this, they all essentially said the same thing, which is that if you're going to make changes, it's good to make changes to one system first before you make changes to the other. Uh, if you're making changes to two integral systems at the same time, you are essentially doubling the risks you encounter for delays and, and losses. Sometimes supply chain problems aren't centered around not being able to get the components you'll need when and where you need them. Sometimes supply chain problems manifest in a way where you receive way too many of something than you actually need. You end up with a surplus of stuff because the supply chain is not keeping an accurate record of where things need to go at any given time. This was the case for Target with their stores that were in Canada. In 2015, the company announced it was going to leave Canada entirely because this problem was so bad. So what exactly was going on? Well, again, there were many problems. Supply chain was just one of them, but it was a big part of it. Target's distribution centers in Canada were getting overwhelmed by more products than they could handle. 
So a distribution center is sort of a waypoint for a product. The companies will typically bring in products into a distribution center. They're brought, they're, they're ordered from vendors throughout the world. And those products go into the distribution center, which then will send those products out to specific stores based upon their inventory needs. So if you have one target where their sprockets are getting low, the distribution center should send more sprockets to that target and keep track of how many sprockets are being sold over a given amount of time so that the supply better matches the demand. Well, that was not happening with Target's Canadian distribution centers. They were receiving tons of stuff even before they could send anything else out, and so things were getting very messy. It was coming in faster than it was shipping out, and rather than keeping an eye on demand and managing supply, the supply was coming in like a fire hose on full blast, even if the outgoing products to Target stores were moving at little more than a trickle. Reuters reported on this matter and specified a particular product to illustrate the problem that made it somewhat amusing. The product was a toddler-sized pink SUV branded with Barbie's trademark. Apparently, the distribution centers were getting overwhelmed by the pink toy vehicles, among other products. Reuters went on to say that the real issue was that Target tried to launch a coast-to-coast launch of stores throughout Canada— which created a monstrously complex supply chain. They tried to go from 0 to 100 in an instant, rather than build out their presence gradually to grow more organically and manage things in stages, you know, trying to to grow province by province as opposed to going nationwide in in one go. And as a result, it became a massive headache and led to Target pulling out of the country completely. So you could call that a massive supply chain failure. Uh, Another cautionary tale is in the form of Adidas, the shoe manufacturer, which had a major problem with its distribution center in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 1996. The company wanted a new warehouse management system that, in theory, would streamline processes and make things run more efficiently when processing shipments to various stores throughout the U.S. So again, another distribution center. Adidas partnered with a company called Integrated Software Logistics Engineering to make the system, but Adidas also insisted that this particular software package be made compatible with the distribution center's existing computers, and that proved to be very difficult to do. In fact, the software vendor would go out of business in the middle of the project while trying to get it to all work out because they could never deliver a a product that Adidas was satisfied with. So without the money coming in from that project, because they weren't able to deliver anything, the company went out of business. Now, on top of that, the distribution center itself had a lot of automated components that were worked into the design. And all of those needed to be fully integrated into the warehouse management system in order for it to work properly. And before all of that could be sorted out, Adidas decided to essentially flip the switch and go into business before this warehouse management system was actually ready. And as you might expect, that led to the company encountering a ton of problems with processing and shipping orders. It got so bad that in 1996, the company was only able to meet 20% of the $50 million in North American orders it had actually received. And 
On top of that, most of that 20% didn't come from the Spartanburg Distribution Center. It came from overseas plants that were shipping their products directly to stores, bypassing the distribution center entirely because that's how big of a mess it was. Adidas saw its market share drop and had to work super hard to regain lost ground, all because of a faulty supply chain management system. One of the biggest supply chain disasters I read about happened that same year in 1996. This was with a company called Foxmeyer. Now, at the time, Foxmeyer was one of the biggest wholesale drug distribution companies in the United States. It posted sales revenues in the billions of dollars. This is one of those companies you should think about when you hear the phrase, too big to fail, and you wonder if that's true. Well, at least in the case of Foxmeyer, it was not true. The company had an incredibly ambitious plan. It was overhauling its information technology systems and installing tons of automated systems into its distribution centers, including stuff like conveyors to move products to where they needed to be within a facility and carousels that would make orders move around so that packers could grab the orders easily. It all made sense from a theoretical standpoint. And the company estimated that these improvements in efficiency would mean much lower costs in production. And based upon that estimation, they started to put in bids on contracts. And because they thought, well, it's going to cost a lot less, they could be really aggressive with those, those biddings. And they just assumed that the estimates were entirely accurate. And you can probably see where this is going. So on paper, the automated systems worked like a dream. When the actual high-volume orders began to pour in, those systems could not keep pace. There was no one system that was performing at such a poor level that you could say, that's what caused doom for Foxmeyer. But there were problems throughout the entire management system, and these problems, even if they were small, all started to add up. And all those automated systems weren't working properly either. In fact, they were causing more work because when they weren't working as designed, a human being had to step in and bypass this. So Foxmeyer actually had to dedicate more workers, not fewer, to compensate for the problems that the automated systems were causing. And as I'm sure you guys know, that's kind of the opposite of what you want when you start incorporating automated systems. I mean, the whole goal is to reduce the workload on a human workforce, not to increase it. On top of all that, the shipment tracking system for the distribution center wasn't sufficient. So there were a lot of cases where a customer places an order, and that order might involve a certain number of doses of a drug or maybe a couple of different drugs. And the distribution center, because of its problems, would ship a partial order to the customer, and the rest of the order might go out in a slightly later shipment. And this was just to try and get stuff out of the distribution center to the customer's hands. But on the customer side, the customer would receive a partial order and look in and say, well, this isn't, this is only part of what I needed. And these customers might be things like, you know, a, a, a drugstore. So they'd look at an order and say, well, this is like half of what I was promised. And they would call up a customer representative and say, well, what, where's the rest of my order? The problem was, that the management system was not adequate. It did not actually show the customer representatives that the rest of that order had already been shipped out. So the customer representatives would do what you would imagine they would do. They would place in an order to send the rest of that to the customer. So essentially, that customer would get twice that part of their order because the, the later shipment 
would get to them. And then the reshipment would get to them. And this would all be resulting in losses for Foxmeyer, the company. In fact, the problems were so bad that they totally destroyed Foxmeyer. The company never bounced back, and it ultimately had to file for bankruptcy. Then a competitor called McKesson came in and purchased all the assets of Foxmeyer for $80 million. Now, that's a lot of money, but it's a paltry sum compared to the billions of dollars of business that Foxmeyer had been doing before it overhauled all these systems. Now, the reason I'm telling you all these stories is really to frame how hard these supply chain challenges can be. I think it gives us a deeper appreciation for the effort that goes into bringing products to market. And that's not to say that there aren't tried and true ways to keep track of a supply chain and to manage it properly. It's entirely possible. And more importantly, it's necessary. Also, I think for the right person, supply chain management can be a really lucrative career. It's a tech-related job that is in high demand, even in industries that you wouldn't associate with technology. It itself is a tech job. I frequently hear that among the many tech jobs out there, it's one of the most sought after in the industry. So if you're someone looking to be in demand, and you're incredibly detail-oriented, and you're really interested in solving these kind of logistical problems, this could be a really good path to look into. It's something that I would really stress that young people who are wondering about where they want to go into business, you know, where would they fit in that world, it's a good one to explore because there is a a definite demand for that kind of talent. Um, In fact, some people would argue that there is a shortage of that talent right now. So that wraps up this episode. I know this was a little bit outside of what I usually cover on tech stuff, but because supply chain issues are so important in every industry, but in technology in particular, I thought it warranted an episode. Thanks again to John Bermudez of Tracelink for joining the episode and giving us his perspective on things. I really appreciate him taking the time to talk with us. And if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I invite you to send those ideas to me. The email address is techstuffathowstuffworks.com or pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find links to where we are on social media over there. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes and you'll find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 